So we're going to think about life looking in the mirror, looking in the mirror. And I want you to imagine that we all live life um, with a mirror stuck to our heads, okay, like this. Imagine it. Awkward. But wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you're doing in life, you're always seeing one person in life, me. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, whatever interaction, you've got this mirror strapped to your head and you can just see one person filling it. I can see me right now. Hello, me. It's kind of weird doing this. Me, I'm right here. Now, in an article um, in The Guardian, someone called Zoe Williams describes how um, narcissistic personality traits, that is being kind of obsessed with self, are on the rise. It's been shown that since the 80s, traits of a kind of overblown self-focus have risen at the same rates as obesity in the U.S., So this is life lived with the mirror stuck to your head. I can see me. I'm thinking about me all the time. Always looking at yourself and actually struggling to see round to anybody else. And if you do manage to see anybody else, their use becomes in feeding your sense of self. Author of a book on this says this, seeing uh, that we... that people who are self-focused end up seeing other people like items in a vending machine using them to service their own needs, never being able to acknowledge that others might have needs of their own, still less guess what they might be. Now, if we're honest, it is very hard to think about other people and very hard not to just think about ourselves most of the time. You know, we're having a conversation and we're thinking, do I want to be in this conversation? Maybe it's at church and this person approaches you and you think, do I want to talk to you? Is that, is that something I want to have? And do you ever have conversations with people where um, they're talking to you, but they're constantly looking over your shoulder to look at other people who they might want to talk to? Now, they're not thinking about others. They're looking in the mirror. They're thinking about themselves. Who would I prefer to be talking to right now than you? This is the problem that the Corinthians have. They live life with a mirror stuck to their heads. Have a look at verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. See, the Corinthians live life looking in the mirror all the time. Whatever the situation, when they look up, they see themselves. They're right. I have the right to do anything. They basically simply ask, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Restrictions are off. You're not the boss of me. So the question is, what do I want to do? And Paul says, guys, you know, there might be an alternative question to what do I want to do? Because not everything is beneficial. If you could just for a moment look past the mirror, you might see that what you're doing isn't doing anyone else any good. And again, he says, I have the right to do anything, say the Corinthian Christians. And Paul says, yeah, but have you considered that it might not be constructive what you're doing in helping other people follow Jesus? No, you haven't considered that, Paul says, because you've got this mirror strapped to your head and all you can see is you and your rights and what you want to do. Now, our culture, our culture um, in 21st century London, I think, struggles to ask if something we're doing is actually good for the people around us. Because the bottom line for how we decide if something should be acceptable is, do I want to do it? If it's not illegal, if it's got consent, if it's safe, if it brings me happiness, then that is what gives us the green light. There's little thought to things like, 
Is it good for our society? Right or wrong isn't so much the issue. Freedom to do what I want is the highest good. Listen to Elsa from Frozen. It's time, I'm not going to sing. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, nor wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Hello, Corinthian. Right? You never thought of Elsa as a Corinthian, but she's saying, these are my rights. I'm free to do what I want. That's the song of our culture. I have the right to do anything. And we're like, yeah, Elsa, go, girl. But in the real world, to always and only ask questions of personal fulfillment and self actually leads to pain in our relationships because you leave no room for anybody else. See, not everyone is actually singing Elsa's song. The singer Ben Gibbard captures, captures the pain that we cause in a song where he's exploring the breakup of his marriage with his wife, who's an actress. This is what he says. Was I in your way when the cameras turned to face you? No room in frame for two. No room in frame. The problem was there was only ever room for one face in frame for you. And that's what causes relationships to break down. I'm sorry, Elsa, if you, if you just say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, you're going to leave a trail of broken relationships around you. We live life with so much of life with room in frame only for one. And so we don't then ask questions for, about others and what might be good for them. Consider the last time you hurt someone. You, you, know, you said something or did something that caused pain. Most likely, what was at the root of things for you was that you were just stuck with this view of yourself and there was no room in frame for you to think about what the other people were thinking or feeling. Think about it. Why, in that situation that maybe comes to your mind, why did you fail to see things their way? Why did you maybe go and say something that just really cut and hurt someone or, or did something that let them down? The question is, who were you thinking about? Maybe you um, failed to do something you said you would. Yeah, you could put that down to bad management issues or whatever, but more likely you saw your needs and had no room to see their needs. Maybe you said something harshly in the kind of heat of the moment. Push down with me. Why did you say that? Well, probably because you wanted to make sure that your opinion was loud and clear. And you think, well, I have the right to tell it, tell it exactly how I feel. Yeah, but the way you said it wasn't beneficial. It wasn't constructive in making the situation better. Can you see that? All you could see was the importance of you saying what you wanted. You could just see yourself. See, the reason we struggle to think about others is that we are just like the Corinthians. We so often can only see one face in the mirror. One person who matters, me, what I want to do. So in the rest of this passage, Paul is going to show us what we can do about this. Let's have a look at verse 23 again. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Paul says, turn the mirror to others. Turn it away from yourself to others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. 
If there's no room in our view for others, we need something that's going to turn our attention away from ourselves so that we're free from looking at ourselves. And we've actually got some space to think about the good of others. So think with me, what is it that allows us and enables our hearts to really turn that mirror to think about others? Because this self-obsession runs pretty deep in us. Well, when you encounter Christ and what he's done for you, it liberates you to stop thinking about yourself and to seek the good of others. The cross where Jesus died, that moment of our salvation, which Paul talked a lot about at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the cross is the thing that turns us outwards to be able to think about others in several ways, and we're going to look at them. First up, the cross tells us that it's not all about us, but it's all about God and what he's done. Being saved by Jesus' death, not my good moral works, takes the focus right off me onto Jesus and what he's done. The cross says, you know, even your salvation isn't about you. It's about God rescuing you. So even the very way that we've been saved takes the focus away from self to Christ and what he's done for us. The cross tells us it's not about you. You can turn your attention away from yourself. Secondly, the cross tells us that God is seeking our good. So now we're free from the worry of seeking our own good to think about the good of others. See, I think a lot of our self-obsession is rooted in a kind of fear of missing out. You know, if we don't make our happiness our priority, well, no one else is going to, and we're going to miss out on good stuff. And so we make our driving focus our rights and our needs because that's what's going to make us happy, and, and I've got to look out for my happiness. But the cross says, God's got your happiness sorted. God's got everything you need. Christ has secured this eternal inheritance for you which can't be touched. You don't need to stress about your well-being and your rights. God will stress about that for you. So now your head and your heart are freed up from having to think about your own happiness to think about the happiness of others. Paul kind of expands on this in Ephesians 5. Let's turn over there. Ephesians chapter 5. We were, if you were at Globe Focus this week, you will have um, seen this. Page 1176. Ephesians 5, verse 1. It says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love. As dearly loved children live a life of love. The point is this. You are so loved. You're so taken care of. Your good is so utterly sorted by your father. You're free from having to worry about looking out for number one. And you can turn the mirror out and live a life of love for others, do good to others. As dearly loved children, your good is taken care of, live a life of love, turn the mirror, think about others. God is seeking your good. So you can stop stressing about your good and think about others. 
Third thing is that the cross gives us our example. Stay in Ephesians 5, but the cross gives us our example. Um, in, in the passage um, in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Jesus is our supreme example of turning the mirror out. So have a look in Ephesians 5 verse 1 again. So follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. And here's Christ's example. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Live a life of love, seek the good of others, just as Christ, here's the example, loved us and gave himself up for us. We love just as Christ loved us. He's our example. And when you've seen such stunning self-sacrifice, it's only natural then to say, well, let me love sacrificially like you, Jesus. When you've seen Christ give up his rights to stay in heaven, to stay in that place of honor and glory and ease. And when we've seen him embrace human suffering and pain and the sacrifice of the cross for the good of others, well, that kind of grips your heart to want to be like him. It would actually be really cold-hearted to see Christ seek your good at such a high cost to himself and then go, thanks, Jesus, back to my mirror. That'd be really cold, wouldn't it? But that's what the Corinthians had done. Think back to uh, chapters 1 to 2 in in Corinthians that we saw at the beginning of the series. Uh, This is a genuine question I would love someone to answer. What was it that the Corinthians didn't like about Paul's message? Anyone remember? What was it that they didn't like about Paul's message? Shout it out. Someone shout Sorry, it was weak, yes, and there was a particular thing about the message that was really weak and they didn't like. Anybody? The cross, thanks Reuben. It was the cross was the thing in the message that, in Paul's message that they didn't like. Now, can you see that there's a direct link between they're not liking the sacrifice of the cross, it's weak, and then their unwillingness to sacrifice their rights for the good of others. It's no coincidence that a little view of the cross leads to a little heart that struggles to seek the good of others. So Paul says, look at the example of Christ. Look at the cross, his sacrifice, and that will inflate your shriveled, self-focused hearts to be able to turn the mirror and seek the good of others. If you feel at all guilty, convicted of being self-focused and self-centered, remember the cross, that Jesus died to forgive us for being so self-focused and he died to turn us out, to be able to think about others. The cross turns our attention away from self out to the good of others. Now, many of us would recognize that one of the things at the root of pain and injustice in our society is people just looking out for themselves. And what we need, and, and, and this is kind of said a lot in the media and things like that, we need to be able to look out for the interests of others, and particularly people of other kind of different social groups to us. We need to be able to empathize more. But let me say this. A society of 
else's, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free, will not be able to nurture the kind of outward other focus that our world needs to tackle issues like inequality and pain. What our culture needs is something that will empower and sustain deep and constant ability to look to the good of others. And a worldview that has no God, but simply me as the highest good, can't produce that kind of outward-looking view that we need. A view that at root holds to a kind of survivor of the fittest mentality will maybe be able to love a bit, mostly your own kind, but it's going to struggle. It won't flourish in the kind of other-focused love that our world needs. But Christianity, the grace of Christ, is the kind of seedbed that will nurture this other-centered thinking that our world needs. So maybe you're here and you're not sure whether you want to embrace Christianity. Well, I want to encourage you, take a look at the kind of mindset that Christ produces in Christians to not look to your own good, but to the good of others. That's the kind of mindset our world needs, isn't it? Okay, so... Paul has said, just like Christ, we need to turn the mirror away from ourselves and seek the good of others. But here's the next question. What is the good of others? What is the good of others that we're seeking? Is it just kind of people-pleasing? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33 sounds like that, back on page 1152 if you've lost it. Verse 33, um, Paul says, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking... um, Sorry, let's not go into that bit. Uh, He talks about trying to please everyone. Sounds like he's kind of people-pleasing. So does Paul go, okay, I've got to think about the good of others, and I just want to please you, so I'm going to find out what you want, and I'll just do that. In verses 31 to 33, this bottom chunk, Paul tells us what the good of others is. And it's all about God. Have a look at verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is a funny little verse because it feels like a contradiction. Verse 24 said, uh, seek the good of others. Turn the mirror out. But now Paul says, oh no, do everything for the glory of God. Well, which is it? Are we doing things for people or are we doing it for God? Here's what Paul calls us to do. To take that mirror, to turn it, and then to tilt the mirror towards God. To turn it out and then to tilt it towards God. Have you ever sat in a room, a little bit like this one, and a little bright light catches your attention from the ceiling? That's a bright light. Oh, it moved. Oh, hey. Oh, it's my watch. And like you caught the sun or a light and you're like, hey, hey. Oh, now I can beam light into anybody's face. My, what power, what joy. Yep, yeah, yeah, no. You can probably do it in here. There's some pretty bright lights. Now, I want us to think about that kind of catching the light in, in a mirror idea. For us to seek people's good and do everything for the glory of God is like us tilting the mirror and catching the brightness of who God is and shining it at people around us so they can see him. Paul's got this vision that whatever we do, eating, drinking, anything can be done in such a way that shows people who God is so that they can enjoy him too. 
like the sun, isn't a giant fireball that's kind of hidden away in some basin somewhere not to be seen. So God isn't this amazing, beautiful, majestic, holy and loving God, but hidden away in a basement not to be seen by anybody. No, God shines. His glory, he's supposed to be seen. So, if things are done for his glory, that means they're done in such a way that allows people to join in seeing and celebrating all that God is. That's what it means to do something for God's glory. So let's connect doing it for God's glory to doing something for the good of others then. The good of others is showing people God in everything you do. The good of others is showing people God in everything you do. You tilt the mirror so that through your whole life, you're helping people see God. Paul makes the connection really clear in verse 33. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. There it is. He repeats basically verse 24, not seeking my own good, but the good of, good of um, others. But then he kind of says, let me expand on what I mean by the good of others, so that they may be saved. He turns the mirror to think about their good. And he knows that their good is seeing and trusting in God to be saved. So he tilts the mirror so that in his whole life they can see God most clearly. People seeing God and being saved is their greatest good. And it's the thing that brings God greatest glory. We love the most by giving the best we have. We love the most by giving the best we have. Um, I, I don't know if you ever get presents from people where they start apologizing to you before you've, they've even like, given it to you. I, I have a relative who does this. Uh, they hand it to you and they go, oh, you know, I've got something for you. It's not very good. It's not very good. And you're like, okay, thanks. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, they actually had some better ones in the shop, but I, I got that one for you. And you're like, awesome. I'm just going to open it now. Actually, it's a bit broken, but I didn't have time to take it back. And you're like, okay, just take it back. I don't want it anymore. Do you ever have that? We don't love by saying, well, I could have got something better, but this will do. No, we love, we seek the good of others by going, this is the best one. This is top of the range what I've got for you. You can't get better than this one. And that's what it means for us to seek the good of others by tilting the mirrors and showing them God with our lives. We live in such a way that's, that everything we do says, he's the best one, he's top of the range, you can't get better than God. So let me ask you, do you believe that the enjoyment of God is the thing that will bring most happiness to the people in your life? Are you convinced that God is so good and so important that he is the greatest gift you could possibly give to people to see his glory and trust in him themselves. Okay, Paul, we get the principle. Look to the good of others and show them God. What does that look like? Well, that's where we get the middle of our sandwich. We've done the two pieces of bread. Let's do the middle of our sandwich where Paul gives his big example focused on food sacrificed to idols. 
let me uh, remind us of the whole food sacrifice or idol scenario which has been going on in these chapters. There are idol temples in Corinth where religious ceremonies are done, including sacrificing animals and then eating the meat. They basically had restaurants in the temple. And Paul has made really clear you shouldn't go to the temple and take part in that and eat the meat. Okay, but what about the meat that then is taken from the temple off to the market? Are Christians free to eat that meat? Paul basically says, yeah, you are. Verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He says, you're free to eat it because everything in the world belongs to God and so it's just meat. So can I buy this meat from Sainsbury's and put it in my lambuna? Yeah, you can. It's all right. Don't ask any questions. Just eat it. Okay, Paul, but let's apply your principle of doing everything, including eating, to the glory of God. How do you apply that to the whole meat eating thing? Well, Paul's quite flexible. He gives us two scenarios where he does something slightly different. Scenario one In some circumstances, he says, go and eat it. Verse 27. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So um, Paul gets invited over by someone who's not a Christian for a meal and he wants to go. He likes the guy. You know, I I like that little addition. And he wants to go. Um, What's he going to do? Because the meat that's presented in the lambuna that he's about to have, that's a type of curry, by the way. Anyway, um, it might have been sacrificed to idols, but then it was bought at the meat market. Well, he says, well, it will be for their good and God's glory for you to go and eat the meat. Don't start raising questions and making a fuss, because this way you'll get to eat a meal with unbelievers. You get to spend time with them. You get to show that by eating with them that God is interested in them. And you might get in the meal to tell them about Jesus. So in this scenario, eat it because that will be the best way to display with clarity to them the glory of God. Okay, but what about scenario number two? Verse 28. But if, you, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So you go for your meal and they bring out the lambuna and they say, oh, by the way, because this is what you had mentioned in conversation, this was sacrificed to idols. Paul says, that changes things. Because now you're eating the meat might actually give them the idea that you're okay with idol worship because they told you it was sacrificed to idols. So he's, he's taking it through this filter. Would that be displaying that God is the greatest good by eating it? Would that help lead to their greatest good of being saved? No, it wouldn't. So now, eating to the glory of God, eating for their good, means saying no to eating it. And it's all focused on them and their conscience. You see that in verse 28? Um, Do it both for the sake of the one who told you, it's for them, and for the sake of conscience. uh, To the other person's conscience is what he's referring to. So he's saying, think about them. Do it for them. Okay, what might this look like for us? 
I had a really good chat with someone um, a couple of weeks ago after a sermon on chapter 9 of Corinthians, which deals with some pretty similar things. And they were sharing how they've been trying to um, go to parties with their course mates to try and spend time with them. Now, going to the parties in some ways is like scenario one, eating the meat, saying, you know what, for their good, in, in hopefully them seeing God, I'm going to go to the party. I want them to see by my going that God is for them and I want opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Okay, but here is the conundrum. Because they said, you know what, there comes a time in the evening where everyone's been drinking so much and they start playing certain kind of drinking games that by my staying and being there, it could look like I'm endorsing what they're doing. So should I leave at that point? Now that's a lot like scenario number two. Actually, my being at this party for the glory of God, for their good means I need to make an exit and leave. So leaving in that scenario would be saying with even more clarity, you know what, God's my treasure, so I can't take part in what you're now doing at this party. I came because I wanted to be with you, but I want to show you that God is God and he's the best. I want to show you that what you're doing is not okay, so I might have to leave at this point. And, and make a stand. And actually, at that point, you might have the opportunity to say something. So do you see the flexibility? But what you're asking is, how can I best show that you need God? By being here, by doing this, or by not being here, not doing this? So maybe you need to take some time to think about how best to witness to your friends. And you'll need a kind of perceptive flexibility in what you do where you ask whether I'm eating, whether I'm drinking, whether I'm hanging out, whether I'm whatever I'm chatting about. How can I do this in such a way that isn't just thinking about me, but will display with most clarity that God is God and that they can enjoy him too. Now this turning the mirror out and tilting it to display God's glory, it isn't only about witnessing to people who aren't Christians. Paul actually really wants us to think about how we treat each other as the church. He says this in verse 32. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. We need to seek each other's good. We need to make it our aim to show each other God, again and again, to enjoy his glory, to point each other to Jesus over and over again. As a church, we need to turn the mirror and we need to tilt it. How can we do that? Well, just a couple of thoughts, a couple of ways. Since we're talking about mirrors, let's think about what we wear. I think that men and women in our culture are not asking generally what is beneficial to others in terms of what we wear. For many people, the question is, what will make people want me? So when you choose your wardrobe in the morning, and again, I'm talking to men and women, probably particularly in the summer, are you just looking in the mirror at what will make you look great and perhaps show off your body? Or can you turn the mirror and tilt it to wear nice clothes but which are going to help people see God is the most precious thing and I want you to see him, not just my biceps and curves, it may be, seriously, I know we laugh, but seriously, we, so many of us do cho- choose, choose our clothes that way. It may be that your choice of clothes isn't beneficial. Is it leading people to purity? 
And if what comes to mind is, yeah, but I've got the right to wear what I want and they need to deal with what they're looking at, who does that sound like? Think about instead the example of Christ who dressed down from the stunning glory of heaven to become an ordinary human. Why? For our sake. And lastly, I want to think about how we talk together as a church. Do you come to church praying and seeking, that's very much the word of this passage, seeking to do good for the church, to point people to God? Wouldn't it be great if we headed over after the service for food in Borough High Street and we went wanting to eat and talk and drink for the good of others and for the glory of God? So rather than just kind of cruising through conversation that may or may not actually be building anybody up, think about how can I do this, have this meal with my church family and talk about God and point people to him. Follow Christ's example. That's what Paul finishes with. Christ who would eat with those who were unlike him. Could you do that? He would speak with those no one else would speak with. Could that be you? He would take an interest in people and ask questions to find out what was really going on in their lives. Could you take that kind of interest in people this evening? And then he always sought to say something that the person needed to hear about God. He pointed them to God and his kingdom. Could we avoid conversation this evening that just points to ourselves instead say something about God? Isn't it weird that as a church we find it really unnatural just to talk about God with each other? There's something wrong in that. Let's make it natural. It was for Jesus. And here's the thing with Christ. Whatever he did, whether he ate, whether he drank, in all his life and in his death, he did it all to give us a relationship with God. He did it all for God's glory and for our good. So here's a simple prayer, maybe. You could pray on your way to church, on your way to Globe Focus, on your way over for the meal after this service. Something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross that you sought my good in God. Please help me now, just as I come and spend time with my church family, to turn my attention away from myself and to say and do things that just display how good you are. Wouldn't that be a good prayer to pray? Well, let's pray now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for for your forgiveness, for the ways in which we can be so self-focused. We're sorry that we're so obsessed with self. We, it can feel like we can't shake this, constantly thinking about our needs. But thank you for the power of the cross and for all that you've done for us, that you have sought our good. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for embracing such pain and sacrifice and suffering for our good, to bring us to God. Thank you for the forgiveness there is for us as self-centered people. And thank you for the change that there is for us as self-centered people. And I pray that as a church family, we'd be characterized more and more by being those who really care about the good of others who really live our whole lives wanting to show people around us who live in darkness the light of the glory of God. That as a church, we would sacrificially care about each other's needs. That we would talk and spend time together 
looking out for the good of others. Lord, this would be wonderful. And we're hopeful that you will do this in us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ, our supreme example. Amen.